Our gospel lesson this morning comes from Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. It can be found on page 1562 in your pew Bibles. Mark 4, 35 to 41. Passage, I'm pretty sure I preached for a Christmas Eve service not too long ago. But anyway, not your typical passage for that. But this is a time where Jesus is with his disciples and they are afraid. Before we read, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for this day that you have made. And God, we... We thank you for your word that you've given to us. We ask this morning that you would help us to hear it well. That we would hear it not only with, um, with ears that are ready to hear and minds that are ready to think, but hearts that are ready to change. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 4, starting verse 35. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. And the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. We'll leave that question to hang. And 2 Corinthians Chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. Paul writing to the church in Corinth says, As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, In the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. We put no stumbling block and anyone's path, so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love, in truthful speech, and in the power of God with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left. Through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine, yet regarded as imposters, known, yet regarded as unknown, dying, and yet we live on, beaten, and yet not killed, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, yet making many rich, no, poor, yet making many rich, having nothing, and yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, And open wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, 
but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children. Open wide your hearts also. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our sermon text this morning is uh, is difficult. It's not difficult because it's a story you're unfamiliar with. It's difficult because it's a story you're maybe too familiar with. We're looking this morning at the story of David and Goliath. We're in the middle of a series on the life of David, and of course, while there's a lot that's going to have to be left out, you can't leave out David and Goliath. This is a critical uh, moment in David's life, in Israel's life. Um, the problem is, we've heard this story. Probably can't even remember the first time you heard it. And this is the same whether you grew up in church or you didn't, because everybody knows about David and Goliath. It's everywhere. Unfortunately, it's usually mistold and or misunderstood. And so this morning, I really wrestled with the you know, do I just need to come up with a creative way to tell the story like you've never heard it before? And finally, what it came down to is no. You've probably heard it a million different creative ways, and that's probably all you can remember about the story is all the different creative things that people have added to it or taken out from it. I think what we really need today is to hear what it actually says. And we can compare and contrast that to the story we remember. So go ahead for just a moment. Just pause, and I want you to think about the story of David and Goliath as you know it, in your own memory, if you were to tell it. Include as many details as you can, and we're going to read through this, pausing occasionally for commentary. All right. I hope you also after telling that story to yourself in your head, I've remembered what the point of the story is. This is in 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 16, which we looked at last week, we saw Samuel anointing David as the youngest of his brothers, the shepherd who was out tending the sheep, And the one who God didn't look at uh, the older brothers with everything that they had to offer on the outside and their kingly appearance as Samuel first saw them. But it said that he looks at his heart. It says, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord selects David to be the next king. That's not the way that kings um, usually came about. Normally, the way that the next king comes up is the son of the king who was before. And Saul had sons. So it seemed like it was going to go that direction, but it didn't. Because of uh, issues earlier with Saul as the king turning away from God, not doing things uh, the way that God had said to do them, not trusting him to do what he had said, God had said through the prophet Samuel to Saul, You have rejected me, and so I have now rejected you as king over Israel. 
and I'm going to take the kingdom away from your family and give it to somebody else. And so that's what we saw last week with David being anointed by Samuel. But the anointing that David received there was not the same thing as an inauguration. He has been marked out as the one who will be the next king. It's kind of like the election or something, but the inauguration is still to come. And so he has this time period. And in our country, we have, you know, between the election day and inauguration, what do we have, like two months, two and a half months, ballpark? For David, it's going to be years and years and years. But nobody really knows for sure. But he's the next guy. He ends up serving in, uh, in Saul's court. Because when the Spirit of the Lord left uh, Saul... Saul became very troubled, and yet the Spirit of the Lord was now with David, and David is the one who could soothe him uh, with music. So these are people who have known each other for a while anyway. Now the stage is set. Chapter 17. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at... I'm not going to get any of these names pronounced right, so just (laughs) read along and see what I'm butchering, but here we go. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Sokah in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephesdamim between Sokah and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with a valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield-bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come up and line up for battle? Or why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistine's words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Okay, so that's where we're going to pause for a moment and look back at that. And what the situation is, is we have Israel, who is now in the Promised Land. They've been there for a while. They've been there through a period of judges. They had not driven out all the people like they were supposed to when they came in. And now we see some of these people groups coming back and causing problems again and again. This happened the whole period of the judges. Now they've got kings, and what these kings are mainly there for is to lead their people in battle. And so Saul has gone out to lead his people in battle. And we have the Philistines, we have Israel, they're facing each other, and we have this unusual scenario, unusual to us, not unusual back then, where you would have one champion fight another champion. And the idea there is not... Well, if we have a stronger guy than your, like if our strongest guy is stronger than your strongest guy, then obviously that's the way the whole battle's going to go, so why even bother fighting? Those two will go at it, and end of story. That's not exactly what's going on. Instead, what it is, is 
everybody kind of understood that it wasn't just people fighting, that there were gods that were at war here. And so behind the scenes, you have these gods who were enabling their side to victory. And so if you have one guy from this team and one guy from this team, and they go out and face each other, whichever god is the stronger god will have their side win. And then, it's not that they wouldn't fight the battle after that. It's that now everybody knew what the outcome of the battle was going to be before they ever began. And so you knew if it was going to be in your best interest to fight or to to retreat. (laughs) Because this is the way it's going to go. And so, Goliath steps forward. He is the biggest and the strongest. And that description that you saw, that we just read of him, I think the whole reason that all that description is in there, all the weights and measurements and height and all that, the whole reason it's there is to be awe-inspiring and terrifying. This is the biggest and the strongest guy. And he is the one that that comes out here. So now what is Israel going to do with that? Now, we mentioned last week with Saul being the king that uh, there was a reason, one of the reasons why he's, he's king, he looks kingly. In fact, when we were first introduced to Saul, we see that he stands a head taller than everyone else in Israel. So he is Israel's local giant. Now, Goliath is calling out, send us your biggest and strongest man. Saul, who's been uh, the king of Israel and is the one who is leading Israel out in battle, is the biggest and the strongest. So who is it that's supposed to be going out to fight Goliath? It's supposed to be Saul. That's what this is, that's what this is about. And so then we heard Saul's response. It says, on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Why? Why is Saul terrified? Because he's looking at the man who's even taller than he is, who's bigger than he is, who's stronger than he is, who has all this armor. And it is awe-inspiring and it's terrifying. (laughs) Verse 12. Now, David, you hear that? You hear that turn right there? Saul was terrified. Now, David, let me go right to him. Now, David was a son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time, he was very old. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. By the way, pause there for just a moment. Did you hear how long this was going on? Forty days. That number ought to catch your attention. I actually saw a depiction of this on screen recently. where the whole thing happens in a moment. Goliath comes out and he says his speech, and Saul immediately is terrified, and David immediately says, I'll fight him. I'm like, well, that really condensed the whole thing. Forty days this is going on. This means by the time that David shows up, 
this has been going on for over a month, that they have been camped in battle trying to figure out what in the world they're going to do and still doing nothing. Forty, by the way, is a number that is used all throughout the Bible for periods of testing. You see this over and over again. Forty, to see if people will turn to God and trust him or turn away from him and trust in something else. You see this over and over again when this number 40 is used. And so here it is. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Now Jesse said to his son David, Take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up, and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing at their lines facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, Do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. Wait a second. Are you telling me that Saul, who is the guy who's supposed to be out fighting, is instead trying to come up with as many different incentives for anybody but me to do this job? If you look closer at what those are, I mean, he is tempting with the things that usually tempt people, money, sex, and power. He's like, if I can get you, with, if one of these doesn't entice you, maybe the other one will. An exempt family from taxes. You don't want that. Okay. So David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Pause. In this entire story, so far, since we first have seen them gathering together for battle, this is the first mention of God. This is the first mention of God. That really ought to be something we take note of, especially when this whole idea of the champions fighting each other was all a matter of which God is the biggest and the strongest. And nobody else has mentioned God yet at all. Okay. And David is like the first thing out of his mouth. He's like, wait, what's going on? Why is, why is he defying the armies? Or who's this guy that's defying the armies of the living God? So they repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he acted just like an older brother. Okay, here we go. Uh, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. David responding like a younger brother. What have I done, said David? Can't I even speak? Beautiful moment in the middle of all the rest that's going on between, between these brothers 
And of course, we just saw David asking the one right question and his own brother missing it. And his own brother accusing him of having a wicked heart in the matter, where we just saw before this that the reason that David was chosen to be king is because he doesn't have the wicked heart that his brothers had. Anyway, that may be an example of seeing in other people what's actually going on with you. But we'll leave that for another day. He then turned, this is David, he then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter. And the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. Saul, who's been looking for anybody, 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 anybody going to fight anybody? And David finally steps forward, and he's like, Anybody else? Anybody else? (laughs) Not this guy. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God, the Lord, who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. You know when somebody says, you're not good enough for something, and your knee-jerk response is, I am too. You can't do that. Yes, I can. Saul just says to David, you can't do this. And you think David's going to start in with this resume. And in fact, that's kind of how it reads, his resume of, let me tell you what all I've killed before. But then he doesn't say that the reason he's able to do what he's done before, the reason he's going to be able to do it this time is because, look, I'm as experienced a fighter he is. I've fought all kinds of things in the past. That's not it. He says, I do have experience, but my experience is not just the experience of battle. My experience is the experience of trusting God no matter what I'm facing. And the same Lord who just delivered me from that is definitely going to deliver me from this because this is an entirely different situation. We'll talk about that in a minute. So Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Well done, Saul. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go on these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with a sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said. This is where the trash talking really gets good. Come here, he said. And I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. 
This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. Okay, first of all, that's, that is like a Braveheart speech if you ever heard one. <laughs> but what he's saying in there is huge. Goliath looks at him and he says, you're going to be easy. I can do this on my own. That is no problem. And David says to him, this is going to go in a very different way than what you're expecting. But the whole thing hinges, the whole thing hinges on God acting. If God doesn't act, David dies. Do you get the gravity of that? I mean, this is really what David is saying. You are bigger and stronger than me. Granted, you have more weapons than I do. Sure. You've got more armor than I have. I've got no armor. <laughs> I'm completely unprotected by any physical means. But I wholeheartedly believe in the God that I worship. And I understand that this is not a battle of who is the biggest and the strongest person. But there's more going on behind the scenes. That there is a God who is going to fight this battle. And he is the one who is going to win. And so he even gets to the point, and it's, I know it's a little gruesome here, this story is probably PG-13, but we tell it to all our children. Anyway. Where David even says to him, he's going to cut his head off. And do you remember what it is that David is holding in his hands? A, a stick and a sling, yeah, and the stones. Exactly right. Now, if you're going to cut somebody's head off, those are not great tools for that. And yet, that is still what David is saying. Like, this is, this is how it's going to go. Everybody, Anybody watching, if you are zoomed in, like we're talking in the children's sermon, if you are zoomed in, you're not seeing any of the behind the scenes, if you're zoomed in on just the David and Goliath part of it, you're like, well, well David is clearly insane. There is no way that he is going to be able to do any of the things he's talking about. He is overconfident, and this is going to be the end of him. But, he says this, <laughs> we'll see in a minute, this is exactly what happens. But David is putting all of his confidence in God, and not only is he loading the whole thing of here's how victory is going to come, it's not because of me, but because of him, then you also catch the reason why he says that, uh, that this is going to be the case. Or the result is that the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you in our hands. What is happening right here is something between these champions, where if you're zoomed out, and you see that, okay, there's gods at work. Then when David wins, this is not just a story of an underdog winning against all odds. This is a story of the God of Israel showing himself to be the one true God. This is not the only time that we've seen him do this, but he does it in different ways at different times and periods of history. So in Egypt, when Moses goes to Egypt and he tells Pharaoh, let my people go, and he says no, and that happens over and over, and there are all these plagues that happen. And one of the things that we see throughout the plagues is a demonstration of the one true God, the God of Israel, showing himself to be the one true God, more powerful than anything the Egyptians have been worshiping. You know, worship the river? Okay, I'll kill it. Turn it to blood. 
You're going to worship the sun? Darkness in the middle of the day. You're going to worship the animals? They're going to die. You're going to worship the Pharaoh? Firstborn son? Dead. I mean, everything they are turning to and placing their hope in, God shows himself to be bigger and stronger and more powerful than all of it. That's the same thing that we're seeing here. It's just now people have a different way of understanding how do you tell who's the biggest and strongest? How do you tell which God is the real God? This is how they were doing it. And so this is why David is able to say, I know that God is going to give this battle to me because he is the biggest and strongest. And if that's really what's at stake, come on. And everybody's going to know. So then here's the battle itself, which you've all been waiting for. Verse 48, as the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. It's probably like the one part of the story that everybody knows. That right there. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone without, sword in, without a sword in his hand. He struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Sha'arim road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. David took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem. He put the Philistines' weapons in his own tent. As Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistine, he said to Abner, commander of the army, Abner, whose son is that young man? Abner replied, as surely as you live, your majesty, I don't know. The king said, find out whose son this young man is. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, with David still holding the Philistine's head. Told you, PG-13. Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked him. David said, I am the son of your servant Jesse of Bethlehem. That is the end Chapter 17, as it's divided up for us here. The story of David will continue. But we need to talk about the lessons for us because when I told you originally to try to remember all the details you could of the story, some of you probably got pretty close to that. Some of you are probably pretty far off from that, uh, the story, based on ways you've seen it told and retold. And then especially when I asked, okay, so what is the point? What is the point of the story? And what in the world does this have to do with us? Why is this one of the stories that we tell to our children over and over? Why is this one of the stories that has carried into popular culture where everybody knows of David and Goliath? What is the message? For many, this is a message of an underdog story where little guys can beat big guys if they just believe in themselves, if they try hard enough, if they have courage, or if they have ingenuity. I've even heard, you know, well, artillery always beats infantry. You know, so if you're going to have a, an air weapon versus a guy with a sword, of course it's going to win. And so is it just a technological advantage? 
that wins? I hope after hearing the story, not a retelling of it, but hearing the story itself, you're able to say, well, no, none of those even make sense with the way this is told. This is clearly told with a different message. Another way that it's uh, often told is, okay, from a, a Christian perspective, God is involved. And here's what it means. It means that you have a Goliath in your own life, so you just have to figure out what that is. You find something that is holding you back from something that you want to accomplish, and it looks big and scary and intimidating, but it's not. Because God is bigger than that, so all you have to do is trust that he's going to give you victory over whatever that thing is. That gets preached a lot. I hope, after hearing this story read, you say, well, that's not it either. This is not a story that is promising us victory over everything, every difficulty we might face in achieving whatever it is we want to achieve. This is a story about keeping our eyes on God and seeing what it is that he's doing in the midst of whatever it is that we're facing and then joining up with him and not having to be afraid because this is what he's doing (laughs) and he can't be beat. And that's different. Sometimes it looks the same on the outside, but it's different. I hate to do what I'm getting ready to do, but I'm going to do it anyway. And that is to explain the symbolism on the bulletin cover. Oh, that's a beautiful one. Well colored. Um, Usually I like to put these covers on there and then never mention them and just make you wonder what that has to do with everything else. I think it's more powerful that way. But this one has some some layers to it. I think it'll help this message stick. One is the obvious and the one that I think most people can take away from this, uh, which is the there's the one arrow going a different direction than everybody else. So just when everybody else is going, you know, saying, no, we can't win, we can't win, David is the one who says, yes, I can win. So he goes a different direction than everybody else. That's not what this means. What this actually means is that while everybody else is looking down, David is looking up. That's what this is about. While everybody else is looking down, David is looking up. While Saul is terrified because he sees Goliath as a big, strong man, David is looking up in God and saying, the biggest and strongest man is nothing. Paul tells us later uh, that the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. The weakness of God is stronger than human strength. The reason that David is able to fight and win in in this situation is because he's looking up. He sees what God is doing. And what God is doing at this particular time, and oh, here's another lesson that this is not. Please, 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 this is an important one. I'm sorry. (laughs) This is important. This is not a story telling us, well, this guy was making fun of their God, and therefore... um, God helped David kill him. Therefore, if people are making fun of your God, then God will help you kill them. No. And the reason I say it's important that I have to cover that is because there are people who, throughout Christian history, have done that. Not necessarily based on this story, but who have done that. Who have said, if you're going to make fun of our God, we're going to go kill you. And there are people um, of all varieties today 
to feel like that is exactly what you're supposed to do. That is not what this is teaching. This is a particular moment in history where God is simultaneously working all these things together, both the lowering of the status of Saul, the raising of the status of David to bring him to the kingship in Israel, the showing himself as the one true God in comparison and contrasting all the other gods around that people kept worshiping because it is through Israel that God said that he was going to make himself known to all the world. So that's what's, uh, what's going on in that moment. That's why this moment looks different than how we experience it today. Uh, Paul tells us in Ephesians, you know, we have a different kind of armor. We have a different kind of battle. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against all these other uh, rulers, authorities, and principalities. And so we have a different kind of armor. Ephesians 6, look it up. I'm not going to go through it all right now. And so, but here's what this does mean for us. God had promised to give them the land. There are people who are trying to take it. And he was going to be faithful to his people and faithful to his promise. This is where it applies to us. What are the promises that he's made to us? And can we believe that he's going to be faithful to those promises? And can we act accordingly as though he's going to be faithful to his promises, even when things look scary? Matthew 16, Jesus asks disciples, you know, who do you people say that I am? And they go through all that. And Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this is not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. This is one of the promises. I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. We see in Ephesians what it looks like for Jesus to build his church. And it means to grow individuals together with him at the head. And there are times where that looks really threatened, where that looks, by all human accounts, impossible. The question is, do we believe that God is going to be faithful to his promise? And do we then act accordingly? David completely believed that God was going to do what he's going to do. Other part of this is, David still stood forward. He stepped forward and acted on it. You could have asked anybody else in the army, do you think God is going to give us a victory? And you go, well, you know, you put it like that, sure, yeah, I think he probably will. Who else is stepping forward? So nobody's actually acting on what they might claim to believe. So, for us, look. Look at the promises that God has made. And then ask yourself, do you really believe that he's going to keep his promises? And you can look again and again at times where he's been faithful to keep his promises. Always, that's what he does. And then you say, well, then if he's made this promise, and I know he's going to keep this promise, then how is it that I can be living in light of that? And it may be very different than how others are living around you. 
examples we could go to, but we're not. We've reached the end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you that you are good, and we thank you that you are great. Lord, we thank you for being involved in the lives of your people, for caring about uh, the situations that we are in. We thank you for acting on our behalf. And God, we thank you that you don't just do whatever it is that we want done, but that you do invite us to join you in what you're doing. God, we ask that you would help us to keep our eyes up, to keep looking for what it is that you're doing, to see the promises that you have made and how you might be even filling those in our time. We pray that you would help us to not not be terrified by the obstacles we see in the way, but know that there is no obstacle that can stand in your way. So help us to live by faith, trusting in who you are, and living according to your word and your promises. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.